Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. Right. is out. Look, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. This is the Passball Show, of course, on the MTR Radio Network. John Pielli knocking it out again. Another Saturday morning, 10 to 12. Just a reminder, anything that I bring up that you want to talk about, we'll keep this program interactive. You could do the whole uh, tweet me, at John underscore Pielli, and we'll get right into things. And like I said, you agree with me, disagree with me, I want to let your voice be heard, man. I'll definitely uh, get back to you. Uh, a lot of different things going on in Major League Baseball. I got a couple good spots today and, uh, you know, looking forward to having them. But we're going to start out by uh, talking about this Cuban outfielder for the Los Angeles Dodgers, Yesil Puig, who has been absolutely on fire. And here's a guy that honestly has gone out there and just torn it up since he got the recall from the Los Angeles Dodgers, the whole thing. And, of course, you know what kind of came into the season, what was kind of holding Puig back from having an opportunity to play every day and that was the fact that the Dodgers had three outfielders with Matt Kemp uh, in center you got Ethier in right you got Carl Crawford in left and uh, you know Puig a guy who signed a seven year 42 million dollar contract with the Dodgers last year kind of doesn't have a place to play but the Cuban-born outfielder, kind of a big guy, wears number 66, has made a ridiculous impact since he has started with the Los Angeles Dodgers since his recall. If you look for the past week, the Dodgers won four of their first five games with this guy in a lineup. And he honestly has become one of their best players in the lineup. And I know it's a little premature to get into the whole thing. You know, a guy who gets off to a great start. Is he that good? Who is this guy? A lot of people don't really understand it, but here's a guy that was very highly touted coming out of Cuba, defected over, and the Dodgers signed him to that a big contract for a guy who's never played in the majors before. You know, look at it from this perspective. I mean, uh, Yonan Suspedes uh, signed to a lesser deal 
to uh, play for the Oakland Athletics. The same thing with Araldis Chapman and the Reds. And both of them have made impacts. Both of them have proven themselves to be very good players at the major league level. But uh, Yasel Puig looks like he is a keeper now. And the Dodgers are in a tough situation. A guy that's hit a game-winning grand slam. He's got at least four home runs. He's driving in runs. He's certainly a bat that could bat either a leadoff or in the middle of the order. The Dodgers need him as a weapon as they try to erase what has been uh, a very disastrous start to their season. And I, I made a good comparison in Bases Empty blog, JohnPLA.com, the whole thing. And we talked about Mike Trout's impact on the 2012 Angels. And if you remember the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim last season with Mike Trout, uh, they didn't have him up. They let, they let him sit, spend the first part of the season in the minor leagues and brought him up after the team got off to a 7-14 and 14 start. They ended up making some moves, whether it was playing Vernon Wells less releasing Bobby Abreu and playing Mike Trout every day in center field. And obviously we all know the rest is history. Trout had one of the most amazing rookie seasons that a player could possibly have. Could have very well won the AL MVP, but not to make it about another discussion, but if it wasn't for Miguel Cabrera, he would have been the MVP of the American League last year. And the Angels were able to change. The Angels were able to get themselves in a position where they can compete. And even though they missed the playoffs, which in itself in 2012 12 was an extreme disappointment they ended up playing pretty strong and you look at the fact that they started out 7 and 14 the trout led them to an 18 and 11 may and eventually the team won 89 games they went 82 and 59 23 games over 500 after trout came up and my question is could the Dodgers do the same thing with Puig being up with them? Could he have that same type of impact as a Mike Trout? Obviously, Puig is a little, probably a little more of a power hitter, a little less in regards to speed. Maybe not the all-around player that Mike Trout is. But I would be, I'm very cautious and I'm very interested in seeing how this turns out with, with Yosel Puig in the lineup for the Los Angeles Dodgers because I think he's a keeper right now. The Dodgers will be absolutely foolish, even with a healthy Matt Kemp, even with a healthy Carl Crawford, even with a healthy Hanley Ramirez and everybody else that's out right now for the Los Angeles Dodgers. If they send Puig down based on what he's doing and what he has been doing, it, it is an absolute it, – it looks terrible. It's, a, number one, a PR disaster. And number two, how do you justify it when, when, a guy, when a guy is actually going out there helping the team win and you're going to take him out of the lineup? Yes, Yaseel Puig is probably not a fourth outfielder. To me, it's, it's a situation where you're not going to play him as, as, as a fourth outfielder and sit him on a bench. It doesn't make any sense. But what you got to do right now is you got to you got to run him out there, and not because he's a young guy. Let's be honest. This isn't a guy that's this isn't a guy to me that's twenty you know one years old, you know that 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 should have been up in a you know in, in a ball or double A that's being rushed to the major leagues. Uh, he is young. He's just twenty two years old, but he's on the second year. Or, uh, yeah, of a seven-year, $42 million contract. And look what he's done. I mean, a guy, geez, to this point in my broadcast right now, which, you know, if it's airing Saturday, I, I recorded this on Tuesday, is 16 for 32. Two doubles, four home runs, 10 RBIs. And, and, you know, the OPS 
and, you know, obviously it's, it, it's inflated because it's only a, a, a based off of an eight-game sample. But, you know, to, to see what he has done and the impact that he has had on this team, it would make no sense at all, absolutely none, to send this guy down to the minor leagues. And, I, and the Dodgers, listen, they got to figure out what they want to do here. The Dodgers got to figure out how they want to handle this situation in regards to their team once their, their top players come back because the Dodgers moving forward are certainly going to you know, have a lot said by what Yasiel Puig does as far as being a, a factor in this offense. And I know the Dodgers felt like they, they maybe had a couple of years where the guy could play down in the minors and kind of gradually work his way back, you know, up to the majors where he belongs. Now that he's up here and now that he's proven himself, there's no reason you could send him down. You know, Matt Kemp, yes, he, you know, the, the MVP type numbers that he put up two years ago, he's been hurt each of the last couple seasons. You know about Carl Crawford, the whole thing. But when you get these guys back, you're going to have to figure out how do you play Yusil Puig. Do you play him in right field every day and figure out what you're going to do in center and left? Obviously Kemp's going to be an everyday center fielder once he's healthy. And then you got the two left-hand hitters, the two 31-year-olds in Carl Crawford and Andre Ethier. And it's interesting to see, you know, the maybe the most logical thing that the Dodgers can do is maybe trade one of these guys. The unfortunate thing is that Carl Crawford is untradeable. It's going to be very, very difficult to trade a guy like Carl Crawford and his contract. He is he is getting paid through 2017, 142 million. You're looking at what what is right now year three. So whatever team picks him up is going to have him on their board for big money for the next four seasons after this year. And the Dodgers, let's be honest, were the only team that anybody could have imagined the Red Sox being able to trade him to based on that contract. So you look at a guy like Carl Crawford and you say ideally the Los Angeles Dodgers would probably like to move him. They'd probably like to make a trade with Carl Crawford and maybe get him off this team, but that's not going to happen. you got to look at it from this perspective and say that he is going to be a Los Angeles Dodger this season. And based on his numbers, he's not doing bad. Nine stolen bases in 51 games, yes, you'd expect him to maybe be a little more of a base stealer, a guy that has stole 50 or more bases five times in his career, but he's hitting 301. He's got you know an 828 OPS, which is not bad. So you got a guy that you probably could put out there in left field and kind of trust your team with. That brings you over to Ethier, who I think becomes a more interesting question. Andre Ethier is a guy that the Dodgers went last season and signed him to a new extension, six years, 99, 95.95 million through 2017 with a vesting option. Now his contract is a little more manageable for a team that would be looking to upgrade itself offensively. The only problem with Ethier is there are concerns over how much this guy has left. But based on his last three seasons, 2010, he had 292, 23 home runs, 82 runs batted in. He backed that up with a 292 season with 11 homers and 62 RBIs, which was a down season in 2011. And then last year, hit 284 with 20 home runs and 89 RBIs, which is probably more of what you could expect or what you should expect from a guy like this and Andre Ethier. Now, Ethier is the guy that's out there playing every day now. Crawford's injured. Kemp is injured. 
Ethier really is out there trying to prove himself. And I think he's proven himself for two different reasons. Number one, to prove his value to the Los Angeles Dodgers and why the Dodgers should keep running him out there once the other two guys get back. Because in my opinion, Andre Ethier is the guy that's probably going to be the odd man out. So he has to prove himself to be in there. But number two, to prove himself to the Dodgers for their own trade value purposes to make it worthwhile that he could be traded to another team to go out there and help out another organization. A lot of people have thrown in the New York Mets in the realms of a possibility to maybe be able to trade for this guy. If you're the New York Mets, do you want to commit yourself to a guy that's going to be under contract for 2014, 2015, 2016, and 2017 with a vesting option that might kick in for 2018 based on games played? I don't know if that sounds so great, but I do think Sandy Alderson and the Mets, in addition to some other organizations, are out there monitoring what they are getting from a guy like Andre Ethier and the Dodgers, what he is doing. Can he get on a little bit of a run here, maybe hit some more home runs, maybe drive in some more runs, maybe be more of a factor for this team, and then you can maybe sell yourself on the possibility that you could go out there and make a trade for a guy like this and have him around in your outfield for the next several years. Now, if that happens, then the Dodgers will win because they'll be able to get something in return, whether it's a prospect, whether it's a pitcher, whether it's a shortstop or a third baseman, a couple different things that the Dodgers do need as they're trying to build this team towards a championship run in the 2013 season. And I know it's very quick to remember and forget the expectations of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And I know it's still at the top of the headlines. Everybody's talking about the Dodgers, the Dodgers, the Dodgers, the payroll, everything that they've gone out there and spent this year, and the fact that it has not worked out to, to where it's supposed to be right now. Currently, where they sit in the standings, fifth place in the NL West at 27-36 and 36 is unacceptable. And like I've mentioned on previous PBSs, that Don Manningly is probably at risk of losing his job if this doesn't change. Reasons I have faith in the Los Angeles Dodgers Dodgers is the talent that they have. I mean, you run out a lineup that has Adrian Gonzalez and a healthy Matt Kemp. Puig now is part of the mix with Crawford and Ethier. And you got the pitchers with in Kershaw and Rue and Zach Greinke that, in my opinion, it's hard to beat that three when you're running out your pitchers out there in Major League Baseball. I mean, Zach Greinke, 3-1 and one and 7 starts, a 389 ERA. His ERA is going to go down. He's going to get more strikeouts to nine innings pitch that he's gotten so far. And Young Jin Roo may be the prime candidate for rookie of the year in the National League to this point. He is 6-2, and two, 272 ERA and 12 starts, and is, is giving a lot of length in most of his games. He's averaging over six starts a game. I'm sorry, six innings a game, which has been phenomenal. And, of course, Kershaw is Kershaw. I mean, the guy pitches to a below two ERA right now. He is obviously the ace of the staff. He's going to make more starts than anybody else. He's going to throw complete games. He's going to throw a ton of pitches. He's going to keep his whip under one. Any team that goes out there that runs three starters with those capabilities out there, I don't care who you got in number four and number five of your rotation. A potential Josh Beckett if he's healthy. A potential Chris Capuano or Ted Lilly once they get themselves healthy. I think this rotation sets itself up to be as good, if not better, than most in Major League Baseball. And when you're playing most of your games you know, in the National League West against teams like Colorado, who I know has still been a surprise, Arizona has gotten a lot better. But you got the San Diego Padres in there and the Giants, who are expected to take a little bit of a step back after winning their second World Series in three years in 2012. I can see the Dodgers going on a run here. 
and I'm not, I don't think I'm going crazy with this thought, but I do think one of the biggest factors is going to be the continuous good play of Yusel Puig, who's out there playing right field for the Dodgers every day, and in my opinion, has earned himself a permanent spot in that everyday lineup. So once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. Reminder, got anything to say, just tweet at me, John underscore Pielli. I promise during the duration of my entire broadcast, I will be checking my Twitter. I will reply to everybody that has a message to send in regards uh, to me and my show and everything going on with it. Moving on, I think I got in a very good discussion the other day, and I was kind of happy about it because I feel like I made a case while another person made a case. A couple other people were involved throwing some uh, inputs in here and there, but this was in regards to a simple philosophy in baseball that has been around forever for the history of the game. can be traced back to the 1870s, and that is bunting. And obviously, bunting is used in so many different ways, whether it's a guy going out there to bunt for a base hit or to just give up and out. And that's where people have the problem with it, when it's talk about sacrifice bunt in the middle of a game, moving a runner over. But in my opinion, that's strategy. And you can't take away strategy in Major League Baseball because it really does play a very important role in this game. You look at teams that score runs. You look at teams that don't score runs. Obviously, a team that has no problem bringing runs home. They got the power hitters. The guy in the middle of the order, it's going to produce. And if you're going out there scoring five, six, seven runs every game, you're probably never going to have to bunt unless you got a leadoff batter that's looking to bunt for a base hit. I mean, that's the only time you're going to see somebody bunt in that situation. But my reasoning behind bunting probably impacts a team that has a hard time scoring runs more than a team that scores runs. You know, look, case in, in a point, the New York Mets. The Mets cannot do anything to score a run. They're lucky if they get a run or two or three in a game. They have no extra base power. They have the lowest batting average in Major League Baseball. And that all being said, what do you have to do as a manager to get your offense to maybe overperform, maybe do something that they're not capable of? Because when you're trusting an offense to go out there and score four, five, six runs a game, it's just not going to happen. So a manager has to push some buttons. You have to do things like steal bases, hit and run. Well, the Mets can't really do that because they don't have base stealers. They don't have guys that are going to go out there and steal 40, 50 bases. That's where a Michael Bourne would have worked out this year. The Mets don't have team speed. They have guys who could situationally run, and that's where you see or would hope to see maybe more hit and runs implemented when it comes to the lineup of the New York Mets. But bunting. Fans hate bunting. A lot of fans can't stand the thought of bunting. And in my opinion, you have to do it when you have a hard time scoring runs. Uh, and, and listen, I mean, you say, hey, you bunt a runner over, runner over to second and you stay out of the double play. All right. I mean, to me, that's not that important. The bottom line is to get yourself in a position to score that run. And if you're not getting any extra base power or hits, how else are you going to be able to score? You, you need three singles to score a run then if you're not getting an extra base hit. And assuming a team that has the lowest batting average in the entire league uh, that team is not going to get a lot of extra base hits. So now you need three singles to score one run. You get a leadoff single to start off an inning. You have a guy that's capable of putting a bunt down to get that runner over to second base. You do it. And once you have that runner at second base, you have a chance, even though you gave up the out, to score a run with two hits as opposed to three hits. And just to wrap this whole thing up here, you have a better chance 
of doing what? A team that can't score runs and can't get hits, getting two hits in an inning or three hits in an inning. And you can even factor in the fact that you're losing an out with the sacrifice bunt. The Mets are more capable of getting two hits in an inning than three. So therefore, if there's a runner at second and one out, you could score that run with the second hit. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the day, be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way, and we wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop. Specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and bodywork, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609 609- 927-9454 and check out their website www.redroseautobody.com follow them on Facebook and Twitter Red Rose Body Shop 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue Egg Harbor Township New Jersey 609-927-9454 Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day... David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. Hey, what's going on? It's John Pielli, MTR Radio Network, back, and uh, we're here with uh, former major leaguer Lou Collier. What's going on, Lou? Not much. How's it going, John? I appreciate you having me today. Hey, anytime, man. Uh, thanks for thanks for having some time. Uh, one thing that you know really interests me in what you've done since you stopped playing is uh, you know wor- working as a coach in uh, MLB's uh, Reviving Baseball in Inner Cities program. And it's something that, you know, I think I, I think has done a good job up to this point. And I just feel like it's got to, you know, I'd like to see it go out there and reach, you know, as many as many kids as possible. Yes, uh, man, I, uh, one of the things that I wanted to do uh, once I uh, retired uh, was come back and, and, and give back to, you know, my community. Uh, you know, I, I know that playing the game, I've learned a lot of things, uh, you know, just – that matured me as a player and as a person. And I wanted to, you know, kind of jump right in the middle of it, you know, some of these kids who have talent but needed to learn the other things, to, you know, to survive and, you know, be able to use, use baseball as a, as a tool to 
you know, help them out of uh, some of the difficult situations. So that was one of the reasons why I got involved with, you know, RPI and, and uh, you know, starting my own organization. Nah, very true, man. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with Luke Collier. Now, could you, could you trace your interest into what you're doing through anything that you went through as a kid? Or, or is this yeah. something that you just feel like, you know, you independently just want to do? Well, I know uh, when I was when I was young, you know, my dad would coach, you know, kids in the neighborhood, you know, kids with talent and different stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we would have all the different sports going on throughout uh, – summer and stuff like that and I just felt like you know man if we could do this on a bigger scale and uh, these kids get some information and, and learn how to work and discipline themselves and you know some, some kids can you know play baseball at a higher level and maybe get some scholarships and, and, and you know if they're blessed enough and they have enough God-given talent can play pro ball as well so that was really the driving force behind it uh, you know a lot of kids is in difficult situations in the inner city uh, and I, I just felt like, you know, I could, you know, lend a helping hand and, and, and do some things to try to help those kids. Yeah, no question about it. Now, you know, as you go back through your career, you obviously, uh, you know, had a chance to play for a lot of major league teams. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you what you would consider the best uh, summary of your major league career. Well, I, I think it would have to be my rookie year uh, in 1998 when I uh, came through Chicago. Uh, you know, the first first opportunity to play in front of fan, friends and family at Ridley Field. You know, something that I always wanted to do. You know, growing up watching the Cubs, you know, I was a Cubs fan. Uh, I love Ryan Sandberg. And, you know, to get that opportunity to play in front of the home fans and, and, and family was just an awesome experience. But just the whole experience in itself, you know, being in the major leagues, playing against guys that I grew up watching, uh, and, 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 you know, just living a dream was, was just awesome to me. Yeah, no question about it, man. Uh, you, you know, you obviously had a chance to play a little bit with the Pittsburgh Pirates. You were involved in a couple trades involving the New York Mets, which, you know, you, you, you never, uh, you know, you didn't get a chance really to play for them. But, you know, as you mm-hmm. moved on, you kind of established yourself as a, as, as, a, as a decent utility player for a couple different teams. Tell us a little bit about what you felt, you know, your role was on the field and what you, you know, what, what you were able to do with it. Well, you know, it was funny. Uh you know, when I got to AAA with the Pirates, I had been playing shortstop, uh, you know, uh, only throughout the minor leagues. And I got to AAA, and they told me, hey, you know, Lou, you're going to start, start the season playing second base. And I had never, you know, done any of those things, you know. Uh, so that was really the first case, and, you know, just moving to a different position. You know, coaches like, hey, you know, whatever the opportunity is, you know, you never know. So you, you might as well embrace it. Brian Braces, I learned how to play second base and different stuff like that. Eventually ended up in the big leagues as an everyday shortstop. But the funny part was the next year I got I got uh, traded to Milwaukee. And, uh, you know, in spring training, the uh, left fielder, Jeff Jenkins, that got hurt. He hurt his hamstring. And uh, Phil Garner asked me, hey, you ever played in the outfield? And the truth was I had never. But I told him, yes, yeah, sure played some outfield and uh and I went out there in left field and uh you know started working fly balls and stuff like that I knew I had the speed to do I knew I'd catch a fly ball so I say hey what what's what's I should be able to handle this but long story short uh me being able to move move around and play different positions 
actually extended my career, and I just embraced it and just worked on it each and every day, trying to improve on uh, on the little things to, to help the team win and, and help me throughout my career. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, this is John Piello with former Major League infielder Lou Collier. Now, you know, you talk about being a shortstop, and obviously it's something that I'm sure you, you, know, you were as you were growing up, and it was probably the position that you were most used to playing. Uh, how, does, how does that impact you? Now, now you mentioned that you know, it turns out to be the best decision for you, extended your professional career. But is there anything mentally involved in changing a position maybe so late in your career? It was. It was tough. Uh a tough transition, especially doing it at the major league level. The game is so fast, and each play is, uh, you know, can determine whether you win or lose. Uh, you know, I just, I just went about it like, you know, I'm a professional. Uh, you know, I, I have to do what the team needs me to do, and I just took it on as a challenge every day. And guys used to laugh at me because I would come to the field, come in the dugout with four or five gloves, first piece mid. Uh, second base glove, third base glove, you know, and outfield me. They were like, man, what you, you know, but it was like, hey, you never know where I may play today. And I, I just took it on as a challenge. Yeah. But it was a, it was a tough uh, mental adjustment, you know, coming out there not knowing exactly where you're going to play. But I just try to keep it simple and, 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 and really prepare myself in the uh, in the pregame, you know, in batting practice and early work and stuff like that. Yeah, and I tell you, it also helps out to know that, hey, if there's a need in, in any one of a number of positions, you'd be one of the guys that could be called upon. If you're just a shortstop, you're not starting, you know the only chance you're going to get in the game is as, as a backup shortstop or as a pinch hitter. Now you know right. if they need somebody at second or third or in the outfield, now you, you know, you're going to become you know, one of the top options that they got if you're not playing every day. Exactly, exactly. And I knew that would, that would create opportunities for me. Uh, so, you know, I just embraced it. And it helps me because now I'm, I'm, I'm working with kids and I got understanding of all the positions. So I got some knowledge to teach them, you know, about all the positions. And also, you know, you know, a lot of young kids, you know, they only think they're shortstops. So they want to play certain positions. I tell them, like, man, you ain't got no excuse. Hey, I had to play everywhere, <laughs> you know. So I want to hear that you play one position. I'm going to teach you everything because when you get older, you never know where you may end up. So it was a blessing in disguise, and I, you know, I don't regret one moment of it. Yeah, and I'll tell you one thing that's interesting, too, is that you look at the fact that, you know, really the best athlete on most teams in high school and in college is usually the shortstop. You know, maybe, maybe yeah. they pitch a little bit, maybe they play another position, but more often than not, the best athlete, the top player on most teams are a shortstop. So, you know, they that's go true. in, they, you know, they go in on a professional level and they're competing with a bunch of other shortstops who are the best player on the best, uh, you know, on their teams. So as you move forward, it's kind of just a, you know, a kind of a battle of the, you know, the best and the ones that really aren't the best probably do have to take take a change in position over time exactly exactly and that's what i try to explain to the kids i try to tell them like hey, look it's going to benefit you to learn these different positions or have some understanding of them you, you know you don't want to learn you don't want to learn these positions late in the game when it's a shock to you uh and you got to compete for a spot you know if you already got some understanding how to play third or second base or outfield that creates opportunities for you, you know. And a lot of kids embrace it once they find out that, you know, I was a major league and I had to do it. They start to listen more, so it, it's helpful. No, no question about it. Once again, John Pielli here with former major league infielder Lou Collier. Now, you had a chance to play a couple of years in Korea. 
I, yeah. I haven't had a chance to speak with a lot of players that have played in Korea. Several have played in the, the Japanese Central League and stuff like that. But I'm just curious, what was it like to play in Korea? It was different. It was different. It was, uh, you know, in Korea, they, they play a lot of small ball. And, you know, from the start of the game, they made bunt. You know, they made, you know, a guy get on the second batter's bunny. You know, they made bunt they three-hitter. You know, it's, it's just... It was a lot of adjustments that I had to make to my game, just understanding how those guys played. But, you know, one thing that I, you know, that helped me was just just being versatile, you know, uh, and being able to adapt to anything. You know, I, I, I hit anywhere from leadoff to, to, to nine, nine in, in America, so I kind of understood all the different roles over there. You know, if they needed me to hit for some power driving around, I understood that. If they needed me to get on base and take some pitches and steal some bats, I understood that. So, I, I, you know, I kind of I kind of got in wherever I fit in that, and it helped me. But, you know, they had that. It was, it was some really good players over there. You know, as you know, I, I think everyone saw, you know, in the uh, World Baseball Classic, the, the Korean team competed really well uh, last couple of times. Uh, so it is some really good competition, similar to the Japanese League, but not as many teams. Uh, it's two Americans per team, about eight teams over there. And, uh, you know, it was a great experience, another great experience, uh, different culture, different, you know, different way of doing things. But at the end of the day, it's baseball. You know, you have to play the game right and you play it hard, and, and they respect you for it. Yeah, no question. Is Was there anything, like, in specific playing in uh, Korean leagues that you're able to pass on to these kids that you're helping out? Well, you know, just, just the work ethic of the, uh, the players. Uh, and the coaches and the discipline that they had, you know, those guys really, really work work their tails off, and uh, they really, really pound fundamentals because you know they're not blessed with the athletic ability uh, as other players are, or the big, strong, you know, uh, players. So they really pound fundamentals. You know, they really fundamentally sound, and they work work really hard. And uh, the players are really disciplined. You know, they listen to their coaches and and they, they do what they need to do to win games. So uh, I just take take that work ethic that I saw the players had in the discipline and try to, to try to instill that into, in, into the kids that I work with uh, today. <laughs> ah, very true, man. Now, before I let you go, just uh, you know, let the listeners know, you know if they're you know, w- within inner city and they want to be part of the RBI program, uh, maybe the best way to, to get a hold of it. Well, you know, as far as the RBI program, it's a few different ways. Uh, the Salvation Army, no, the, the Boys and Girls Club uh, run that program. But you can get information through the Chicago White Sox. You can contact the Chicago White Sox. They have a program. Chicago Cubs have a program as well in the inner city. Uh, so if they contact either one of those organizations, they can get information about the Chicago White Sox. They can contact me as well, uh, lucariabaseball.com. That's my website. Uh, my, uh, my email address is uh, callyer340 at yahoo.com. They can email me if they need information. Um, I'm doing training. I've got a youth program as well with about 100 kids that we, we, we have with three or four different teams. So, uh, you know, it's all in the city, kids developing, playing baseball. We're just trying to get baseball back in the city, man, because there's a lot of talent around here. Now, it absolutely is. Listen, Lou, I want to thank you for having some time today, man. Appreciate all the insight and, uh, you know, keep up the good work with everything you're doing for the RBI program. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me.
And nice spot there by Luke Collier talking about reviving baseball in inner cities, the RBI program, helping out all the kids, and of course, a little bit about his major league playing career. But we're going to take a break. Uh, a couple more topics I want to hit up before we hit up the uh, first hour of this show. So I'll be back with a little more going on after this Passball Show, MTR Radio. listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. And you're listening to MTR Radio. A flipping out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. Welcome back to the Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. And we talked about a little bit, a couple of conventional things going on, the agreement or disagreement with whether somebody should bunt or not, bunting for sacrifice, giving up the out, the whole thing. And, of course, we talked a little bit about UCL Puig throwing an interview with Luke Collier. So we got a lot done already. But I want to finish up the first part of this hour by getting in a little of a historical aspect, something that obviously we love to do right here on the Passball Show, talk about the present, the future, and the past of Major League Baseball. And, of course, you want to be part of the discussion, Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, and just let me know what you're thinking. Um, I was talking a little bit about the other day about the MLB all-time home run champion 
before Babe Ruth. And I find this real interesting because a lot of people talk about Babe Ruth and obviously his run, whether it was from whatever, the 1921, 1922, uh, when he finally uh, broke that uh, the all-time record and held it for so many years up until Hank Aaron broke the record. And, of course, most recently, whether you want to agree with it or disagree with it, of course, Barry Bonds ends up sitting right now with 762 more home runs hit by any other major league player in the history of the game. Whether it was artificially enhanced or not, he still has more home runs than anybody that has ever hit in the history of baseball. But prior to Babe Ruth, obviously, you know the game was different. Babe Ruth changed the game of baseball with the home run and everything that he did. Not just him but he started the home run error and the live ball error, hitting 60 home runs, being a guy that was going to go out there and hit a ridiculous amount every year, something that had not been done before Babe Ruth was around. But few people know who it was that Babe Ruth actually passed for the all-time home run record. And the guy's name was Roger Connor. He played with several teams in the 1870s and instead really I'm sorry, the 1880s. I'm sorry, 1880 to 1897. 18-year major league career. Played of course in the Players League for one year in 1890 with the New York Giants when they switched from the National League to the Patriot League and back to the National League the following year. And obviously you're talking about a game that was different then. Yeah, you, know, you know, sometimes there wasn't even fences. Sometimes there wasn't even, uh, you know, seasons where it weren't even played with more than 85 games in a season. So it was it was hard to accumulate a ton of home runs. And it wasn't like Roger Connor was his bona fide home run hitter. Yes, he led the league, the Patriot League, in 1890 with 14 home runs. But remember, you talk about a little later on in home run bakers of the world, uh, obviously leading the league with home runs and nine, with nine. Obviously, this was a little bit of a different time, and it was also a lot more difficult to keep stats, to keep track of, of how many home runs somebody was hitting. Because you know, let's, let's be honest, I mean, you're looking at a time that was so different. It was so much earlier, you know, in regards to how, how you were going to be able to do this. To, to keep stats and obviously nobody cared about stats nobody knew that major league baseball was going to be around at the time for over 100 years and what you end up looking at is a guy that goes up there and he puts up some numbers he has a long career he ends up for some reason being held out of baseball's hall of fame until 1976 which is uh, about about 45 years after his death and if you look at what Roger Connor was able to do, he, he, was, he was just a consistent player. He didn't stand out. He wasn't a superstar. But he just gradually hit his share of home runs. And as the game changed a little bit in the 1890s, he had a couple seasons where he hit 14, 15, 14, 13. You know, the consistent amount of home runs ended up adding up over time. I think he hit as many as 17 in a season with the New York Giants. And the fact that he finished his career at the time with 131 home runs in his career, I mean, what I find unfathomable and amazing about the game, the way it's played today, is that that, you know, people wouldn't be able to believe you that that was the most home runs ever hit in a career for a Major League Baseball player. I mean, you got how many guys have hit 500 now? You know, you got, you got what, how many, nine players, eight players who have hit 600 or more, which was different, obviously, than it was a couple of years ago. Well, you know, when you remember, it was just Willie May and uh, Henry Aaron and Babe Ruth. Now now you got, what, Sammy Sosa's there, Ken Griffey Jr.'s there, of course, A-Rod. You got, you know, so many different other players, Barry Bonds, that the, the list is changing. 
and obviously you've seen the game has changed right now to where it's kind of plateaued of where of all those home run records that happened in the steroid era and you know hitting more than 60 home runs is not as common as it was in 1998 or 2001 but you've seen the game change and obviously because of that a whole era of baseball goes by the wayside and we tend as fans just forget about what what it was like when it was so hard to hit a home run when there wasn't even fences out there when it was just as good to hit a triple a guy would hit 25 triples in a season but would never hit 25 home runs and Roger Connor, a guy who played from 1880 to 1897 for a handful of different teams and a handful of very interesting teams that, uh, as a baseball fan, unless you're a diehard historian, you would not know about. You would not know about the Troy Trojans who were around from, from you know, in the early part of the 1880s. You wouldn't know, you, know, you of course, would know about the New York Giants, but you wouldn't know about the New York Gothams who became the Giants in 1885. And then after that, he ends up moving on to the Philadelphia Phillies first season, rejoining the Giants in 1892. And after that, finishing off his career from 1894 to 1897 with the St. Louis Browns. And people think of the St. Louis Browns, they think of the American League team that eventually became the Baltimore Orioles. But this was the St. Louis Browns that became the St. Louis Perfectos in 1899. And then in 1900, became the St. Louis Cardinals, the National League team, probably the greatest National League team in the history of Major League Baseball. But you look at a guy that, listen, didn't have a bad career. Now, were his numbers bona fide Hall of Fame numbers? And you could say, hey, how is he not a Hall of Famer? Maybe not. 1,620 runs scored, 1,467 hits, 441 doubles, 233 triples to go with what eventually became 138 home runs. He finished with 1,323 RBIs, over 1,000 walks, and just 455 strikeouts at the time. His strikeout totals were considered very high. You know, people in the game couldn't believe that he was striking out as often as he was. And I think he had a couple of years where he had about 40 strikeouts in the season. Obviously shows that the game's changed now when he got several players that are finishing the season in, in a high one, 180s, 190s, and over 200 strikeouts in the season. That, that would be unbelievable. That would not happen back in the late 1800s and even the early part of the 1900s. But a guy that... Didn't get credit for as many stolen bases as he had. As before 1886, stolen bases were not calculated. So he had about 244 steals. Uh, he also played what I, I thought was very interesting. Roger Connor played nearly 200 games at second base and third base. Interesting because he was also a left-handed thrower. And you remember a lot of players that played in the late part of the 19th century were left-hand throwers that were kind of played wherever on the diamond. And I do think that that was very interesting. But you look at the fact that this is a guy who put up decent numbers, not great numbers, but in my opinion is a Hall of Famer and should be, should have been sooner because he held the great home run record before Babe Ruth. And he is the answer to a very good trivia question. When you look at how many home runs the guy hit before Babe Ruth, who did Babe Ruth break as far as the record for the most most home runs hit in Major League history? And the answer is Roger Connor. And a guy that, that I think should have been honored a little bit sooner in regards to the history of Major League Baseball when it comes to a Hall of Famer, the whole thing. I think this is a guy that is getting some, you know, has got some of his due. Unfortunately, it happened well after his death in 1931. But let's be honest, you, you look at the fact that the Hall of Fame didn't start taking players in until 1936. 
and the fact that he was brought in 40 years after 1936. Yes, that was a little long. But you also did have to honor all the best, all the ones that put up the greatest numbers in the history of Major League Baseball. Unfortunately, it takes 40 years to recognize the guy and what he did, but a guy that certainly deserves some credit. And I give the guy all the credit that he deserves because uh, now here's a guy that, listen, there he was before Babe Ruth, the home run champion. And, and not too many people could say that they were that. Only Babe Ruth was after. And only, of course, Henry Aaron was after that. And prior to that, of course, Barry Bonds, who still holds the record right now in Major League Baseball. Will somebody else eventually pass that record? I don't know. I don't really have an answer. I don't know really what to say in regards to who will be the next home run champion. Will Barry Bonds hold on to the whole all-time home run record for 50 years? It's a distinct possibility because we may not not have another bona fide all-out steroid error. Now, the, the person listening to me may say, well, steroids are probably still involved in the game. Well, they are, but at the same time, you're not looking at a situation where you have something that is totally dominating the game. You're not getting steroid type of numbers when you're looking at totals, whether it's hitters or pitchers or the whole thing. So I think that you're looking at steroids and their impact in Major League Baseball. Yes, they are felt because certain players are doing steroids and getting away with it right now. But you're looking at the stuff that's going on with the Biogenesis Clinic and the opportunity for Major League Baseball to attempt to make a big stand right here. And if they could do that, I think it'll be phenomenal. I think it'll be something that'll certainly benefit the long term of Major League Baseball and their efforts to get steroids out of the game. But because of that, I think it's going to be hard for a player to go out there and hit 762 career home runs. I mean, I think that's something that you're even looking through. Who are the up-and-comers? Who are the guys that are putting up numbers like that? Albert Pujols, yes, could very well finish with 600 home runs in his career, maybe 700 if he plays out his career to a similar part of his capability. Alex Rodriguez, let's be honest. You look at Alex Rodriguez, and a very good case could be made that his career is just about done now as he sits at 647 home runs. He would be the guy that you would think would be the biggest threat to challenge Bonds and what he's done. But what has happened with Alex Rodriguez and his career, the hip injuries, which you could say are very much related to the use of steroids and performance-enhancing drugs, and now you throw in what's going on with the clinic and the biogenesis and how that's going to impact his future. Well, I think biogenesis, in my opinion, has a tough case to make about these players. And I think, the, I think you're looking at the testimony as a guy, of a guy in Anthony Bosch to see what Anthony Bosch is able to do as far as his test, you know, it was, as his testifying in the, in the court is not going to be enough by itself to be able to incriminate these players and get these type of suspensions that Major League Baseball is looking to have. What he's going to have to be able to produce is actual evidence, and that's names on prescriptions. That's names in a computer system as patients that were being seen at the clinic. And it's also a breakdown of the chemicals that were being purchased by these players. And once that's all out there, yes, Major League Baseball will have more of a case against the players that are involved in this whole thing. But that being said, what I do find very interesting is how long of a process is this going to be? This is going to be 
added to what is the dark cloud that has been held under Major League Baseball that we have all known about and felt for the last 10, 12, 15, even 20 years for those who want to trace steroids back to the early days of Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco with the Oakland Athletics. The issue that I have is that, listen, you're not going to stop the players from using these type of drugs. And you're also not going to be able to stop these players for trying to give themselves the biggest advantage that they could possibly have. And clinics like the anti-aging clinic in Florida, biogenesis, the whole thing are going to continue to exist because the players are going to be in tune with the best chemists who are going to get them the best drugs that are going to not show up in their systems when it comes to testing that Major League Baseball is implementing. The HGH testing, I think, is great. I think it's the opportunity to get blood samples and to be able to detect certain drugs and chemicals that wouldn't be able to be found through a regular urine test. But you got the, the fight against the Major League Baseball Players Association, who you've finally gotten on board to agree to a drug test, testing and treatment program, which I think is a certainly a positive step in Major League Baseball, something that was not done before. But looking at it from this perspective, how much do you really care as a fan? I want to see my team win. I want to see the players perform well when I'm going out there watching the games. Do I care if a guy is clean or not? Listen, I just want the grounds to be uniform. And let's be honest, in the 1980s and 1990s, everybody had access to the same chemicals that weren't be, weren't being tested. Now, did, did somebody that cared more about their body have a disadvantage against a player that didn't? Absolutely. A guy like Ken Caminiti, who ends up dying an early death, obviously suffered for, for what he did to his own body. Lyle Alzado, the, for the Oakland Raiders in the NFL, obviously ruined his life by his steroid use. And I'm sure as time goes on, you're going to find more and more players end up feeling the physical effects of the drugs that they put in their system. And that will end up, number one, hurting their life and ruining their life. And number two, ending their life at an early age. But as a fan, do you care about that? Listen, nobody want, no, everybody's going to be sympathetic when it comes to somebody losing their life. Nobody wants to see anybody else die. But the players knew what they were getting into once they choose to, chose to put this type of harm into their own body. And I don't have any remorse for that. I really don't feel bad in regards to that. I don't feel sad when we're talking about players that end up having physical effects of the drugs that they put in their body because they chose to do this. They chose to, quote unquote, cheat and give themselves a distinct advantage. Some of them had to do it. I agree. And I tell I tell a story about what I heard from Paul LaDuca that makes me the most reasonable when it comes to talking about what happened. Paul LaDuca was in a spot where he was a minor league baseball player. He got himself up to the AAA level, but he realized that players that were playing in the major leagues were doing steroids. And he wasn't good enough. And he said it himself in his own words that he felt he wasn't good enough to be able to make it into the major leagues. And him and four other players decided that they were going to start cycling steroids into their system, giving them the best opportunity to compete and make it and succeed in the major league level. And he did it. And that's why he did it. And that I could actually respect. And I've said all along that I'm not this anti-steroid guy to think everybody that ever put that into their system is a ridiculous cheat. Because for the most part, most of the players that were playing in that same time were doing the same thing. 
So what are you going to do? Are you going to not gonna have a major league career because of it? Just because everybody else in steroids is doing it, you want to be goody two-shoes? Uh, is, it, is it fair that you should not have a career? Listen, a player that did it because of those reasons, I understand. And I actually stand behind. Feel free, tweet at me, John underscore Pielli. Once again, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. You know, let me know what you think. You want to get into a big discussion, debate over the use of steroids and performance-enhancing drugs in Major League Baseball, go for it. I have no issue with it. I'm not going to complain. I'll have a nice discussion with you similar to the bunt talk we had the other day. You know, let, let it out. Let me know how you feel. Once again, this is the Passball Show. We'll be back after this.